Usually our pattern is a book study, and that is something we will return to in just a moment, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, syllable by syllable sometimes. And that is what we delight in, that's what we enjoy, and yet as a follow-up to our study in Philemon. Philemon, of course, is that master who had the runaway slave, and Paul said, you better forgive him, receive him, and all these things. He never mentions the word forgive, and yet it's really permeating the whole letter that Philemon should have that aspect or, or relation to this man Onesimus. And the evidence, of course, is throughout that, and, and we looked at that at some detail. But in terms of this idea of forgiveness, what is a definition of it? Why is it even necessary? What if I don't feel like forgiving that other person? Why should I forgive? When should I forget? Who, who should I forgive? Whom, whom should I forgive? Who should forgive? All these questions I see are on your hearts, on your, in your eyes uh, this morning. Many questions and more that we will look at as we go through it. This is a topical study. We'll look at a bunch of different scriptures. Have your Bibles open. I'll have some notes on the screen, but not all the scripture references. So if you want those, uh, you better uh, write them down or you can ask me later and I'll share with you my notes. Anyway, the importance of covering sin. You think the importance of covering sin, well, wait a minute. Let it, let it be said straight away, we may not cover our own sins. He who confesses and forsakes their sin will find mercy, but you cover your sin? No, you'll, you'll end up in ruination and despair. But it is important to cover sin. It's very important to have the twofold aspect of covering sin. First of all, we see in Scripture, how do we cover sin? We just overlook it. We just don't even focus on that. Uh, it is, isn't it interesting, though, how often when you walk into a, a, a clean, pristine room and you're just enjoying it, and then you see the mar, the little, st the, little, the little stain on the floor, the thing that is a little bit askew, maybe the, the frame is just a little bit off kilter, and what do you fixate on? That. But it's a beautiful room. Enjoy the whole thing. Enjoy the, the hands that prepared it and so forth. When you look at that issue, that is focusing on that, that failure, right? Isn't sin a transgression? Isn't a trespass? Isn't a falling short? Well, the importance of covering sin is that we overlook it, first off, first off, that we would be, as Ephesians 4 and verse 32 says, kind to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. If anything, this should be the default mode of our lives, of our interaction one with another, just overlooking sin. Why should that be our default? Because we sin, and we're sinned against. Just all kinds of things. Word, attitude, action, uh, negligence, um, any kind of slight, any kind of offense that minor, major, whatever it is, it, it can cause a rift in a relationship, a change in the relationship. And so we see the importance of covering sin by just overlooking it. We'll see uh, a lot of different examples of this. Overlooking sin, again, ought to be the default mode for us, just not taking a record of wrong suffered. Does that sound familiar? Maybe First Corinthians 13 talks about love. Love does not keep a record. You know, writing down in a little book all the ways that I've been slighted and offended and mistreated and abused and victimized. And Okay, yes, yes, you have been. And so is everybody else. Is that an excuse for wickedness and evildoing? No. We need to uh, confront sometimes that sin, the sinner, the offender. We need to move on. We'll, we'll see these kinds of things in that regard. But one way to cover sin is by overlooking it. The other way is by confronting the sin. We overlook the sin and we can confront sin. Those are not mutually exclusive, by the way. We, we can cover sin by, by um, 
Just overlooking it, First Peter 4 and verse 8, of course, says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. First Peter 4 and verse 8, love covers a multitude of sins. We could read in Psalm 103, I won't take the time, but Psalm 103 uh, speaks about that. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget none of his benefits. What has he done? He's redeemed your life from the pit. Y'all ever been in a pit? Like a pit that you can't get out of? That's God's specialty. He redeems your life from the pit. So we can overlook, we can go beyond these things. Do you know Proverbs 10 and verse 12 said, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Love covers all transgressions in an overlooking kind of a way, just not focusing on that issue and realizing, not excusing sin necessarily, but realizing, you know, that person may have meant it for evil. Does that sound familiar at all? Genesis 50, 20. Uh, you, may, you meant it for evil. I know. Joseph said to his brothers who, you know, mistreated him, sold him into slavery, and then lied about or implied, the, encouraged the misunderstanding of his demise uh, to his father. And then for years, never spoke of, you know, never confessed their attitude toward, toward their father. A hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Why? Not just for me to elevate me to this position of authority, second most important person in all of Egypt, if not the world. No, for the saving of many people. This is why God did it. This famine was coming, and God wanted to provide a way of deliverance, not just for the Egyptians in Egypt, but for Israel, cradling them, holding them, uh, the nation, the, the uh, forging or burgeoning nation of Israel. Proverbs 12 and verse 16 says, A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals a dishonor, just hides it, doesn't take an offense at it, just moves along, does not, uh, is not hot-tempered, you know, uh, just easily flying off the handle, easily uh, responding, you know, okay, you're in my face, I'm going to get in your face even more so, all that kind of thing. No, a prudent man conceals a dishonor. Proverbs 15, 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but a slow to ang- the slow to anger calms a dispute. This is what we ought to do. If it's toward us, calming a dispute, being peacemakers, right? What does Jesus say about peacemakers? They should be called the sons of God. They should be called those who are right after God's heart. He is a peacemaking God. Now, as the saying goes, there's sometimes a peace that only comes after a war. And did you know peace that we have with God came after a war, and that war was God the Father against God the Son. Can you imagine the war? Can you imagine the anger that God the Father had toward the Lord Jesus Christ? There was a peace to be had, but only by the defeat of the enemy. And you know, Jesus became God's enemy? Is that impossible? There was a sermon years ago that R.C. Sproul gave at a conference, and in the, in the course of that sermon, he was speaking about the the separation, the judgment that our Lord Jesus took upon himself, Isaiah 53 and others. And he said, it is as if God the Father from heaven is speaking at Jesus on the cross and he is saying, damn you. Can you imagine that? God the Father damning, condemning our Lord Jesus Christ. There is that warfare that can only be, or excuse me, that peace that only comes after a war. God the Father was at war against the Lord Jesus Christ. In that moment, Jesus lived a perfect life so that, so that he's not dying for his own sin. He's dying for me. He's dying for you. you. Put your faith in him. Jesus died for those who would acknowledge their sin and draw near to him. 
there is that, that matter. Sometimes we overlook that sin. Sometimes we confront the sin. In fact, it says, uh, James 5 and verse 19 and 20, James 5, last few verses there, my brothers, if any of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, how does he do that? How, does you, how do you turn somebody back? We'll look at that in a moment. But if anyone you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, is, is that person that James describing, is that one who is overlooking the sin, not taking any offense at it? No, this is somebody who sees the brother straying and turns him back turns him back. He turns the sinner from the air uh, of his ways, and he will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. How does he do this? Well, Matthew 18 speaks about this. We, we talk about church discipline, Matthew 18, all these things. But Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Now, I know there are different dog training philosophies and so forth. If your little puppy, cute little puppy dog makes a mess in the corner of your room, Maybe you're, you're trained to take that dog, put the nose of that dog right in that mess, and say, do you see what you did? That's sort of, sort of, okay, sort of the idea. You go and show him his fault. You go and point out, you, you bring him to a point of conviction over it. Do you understand what you did, brother? Do you understand your words, your actions, your attitudes, how it was not honoring to the Lord? I was not pleasing to God. If your brother sins, does it say, if your brother sins, and some translations have against you, which is fine to add in there. It's that those two words are not in all the manuscripts, but if your brother sins against you, does it say you should just take a moment for yourself? You should you know, have a little self-pity party. You should really put that in the catalog of all the other ways that that brother has sinned against you, and you better be watchful. Be wary of that guy next time. No. If your brother sins, even against you, your attitude, your motivating, motivating energy ought to be for the benefit of the other person, you go and show him his fault. Not in a, a condemning, not in an accusatory way, but the concern is for the brother. Going back to James 5, that man, that person, that brother is straying from the truth, and now we have an opportunity to turn him back. Galatians 6, 1, this familiar verse, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you are spiritual, restore such a one. In a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. There is much to say about covering sin, both by just overlooking it, not taking an offense, calming a dispute, concealing a dishonor, all these kinds of things, just overlooking it, or if needed, that we would confront the sin, that we'd be willing to love one another enough to speak truth. Praying, you know, Matthew eighteen fifteen says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother, you have persuaded your brother and, and brought him or her back into repentance, back into a right relationship with God many of the scriptures we could look at. Did you know that when, when ought we to confront? When, how do we know the difference? What, what's the difference? Or, or how do we know when to overlook something when, when we need to even confront an issue? Well, there are a couple different concerns in, in that uh, consideration, I guess. One is if you see that somebody is sinning against somebody else, you see there's an abuse going on over here that, you know, so-and-so is, is offending so-and-so, so-and-so else. Uh, if you see a sin, a serious offense that is occurring against somebody else, you go confront the offender. Scripture's big about that. You want to read and listen to the, the prophets? So much of the prophets are concerned with justice and righteousness and uh, uh, protecting those the rights of those who are being oppressed or, or uh, 
uh, forsaken or abused, all these different things. Exodus 23 introduces this idea, not the first time, but reinforces it. Exodus 23, verse 6 says, You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. How do we do that? We intervene, we help, we intercede on behalf of those who are being oppressed. Jeremiah 22.3 also speaks about this, doing justice and righteousness, delivering the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Don't mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, the widow. Do not shed innocent blood in this place. Deliver those. If you see somebody sinning against somebody else, you can't just overlook it. Say, oh, I'm sorry. At least it's not happened to me. No, we we go and, and go into protection mode for that other person. Now, it can be that that person chooses to overlook the offense, overlooks the slight. That can be even in relation to, you remember how David, when he was fleeing from his son Absalom, leaving Jerusalem, and this guy was cursing him and throwing stones, not just at David, but all the company leaving him. And David, you know, had these mighty burly men. Do you want us to kill him? How many different ways do you want us to kill that guy? Shimei. And David says, no, let him alone. Maybe God has appointed him to curse me because I'm worthy of it. So David chooses not to take an offense in that moment now. You can read the rest of the story about Shimei and how he comes to a a rather difficult end. And yet, years later, but at that moment, David chose to overlook the offense. Do you know, speaking of dogs, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you have to be careful when you go and intercede on behalf of somebody who's being mistreated. Proverbs twenty six seventeen, Like someone who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. It's not to say, not an excuse to say, well, I'm not, that's a strife, that's a, a, an affair that doesn't belong to me, but you're seeing it, and so you ought to take action. You may not come out, you know, rose-colored or, or, you know, smelling all pretty. You may get bit, you may be hurt yourself, but you've got to intercede, interfere on behalf of that one. Another way that we know between overlooking sin by just concealing it, not taking it to mind, versus confronting it, is when ignoring an offense might hurt the offender, what? Ignoring a sin might hurt the offender, then you need to confront you. What? I, didn't we read Galatians 6.1? If any man is caught in a trespass, caught, either ensnared or caught in the act of it or somehow um, uh, exposed in that, in that regard, we go and restore such a one. We have our mentality is not for myself, not for my reputation, not for my convenience. You know, it's Sunday evening at 9.30 in the evening, and I, I'm tired, and my shoes are off and put away. I'm not going to go deal with this issue over here. We ought to be more concerned. Dealing with the offense, it's not about me, it's about the offender, because they are straying. They're turning away from the right and, and, and true path that they ought to be walking down. When ignoring an offense might hurt the offender, confrontation is required, one person said. Another aspect, two more aspects of how do we know when to conceal when, and versus confront. If that sin is scandalous against the body of Christ, it would, if it would bring reproach to the, to, to the church, this idea is uh, enforced in um, re- reinforced in Hebrews 12 and verse 15, talking about a root of bitterness. And it says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. There is a root of bitterness that can be in your heart, but I think he's talking here about a root, a person that is causing bitterness and spreading that bitterness in the assembly, and that in the congregation causing trouble and defiling or afflict, aff, inflicting, aff, afflicting, affecting many other people in that in that 
that church, First Corinthians 5, uh, is that issue of, of uh, somebody who's uh, sinning in that regard, and Paul confronts it. Titus 2 also speaks about that, being bringing reproach upon the word of Christ, the word of God. We ought to be very careful in our conduct so that the uh, doctrine of God, our Savior, would be adorned and not maligned, right? So if that offense is scandalous or otherwise potentially damaging to the body of Christ, then we need to confront. One final aspect here is that any time the offense causes a rift, a, a broken relationship, that you know, I can't relate to that brother, that sister anymore. And, and the way that we used to, things have changed. Why? Because of that thing. I tried overlooking it. I just can't overlook it. I, we, we need to do something about this. We need to talk through this issue. And so formal forgiveness, the formal steps even of forgiveness are essential toward reconciliation. It's so important that Jesus inter introduces his statement about his command even to forgive other people by saying, be on your guard. Be on your guard, Luke 17, verse 3. Be on your guard. Watch yourself because, oh, paralleling this passage with Matthew 18, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Offenses, uh, impetuses or reasons for sinning, not reasons, not justification, but, but things that just trip us up and say, oh, and we respond harshly, we respond rudely, whatever it is. Watch yourself. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, what's our role? Rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If there is any kind of a, a broken relationship, we have an opportunity and a responsibility even to confront that sin. Why is forgiveness important? Oh, are you kidding? Because we need it. I need it. I need God to forgive us. Forgive me. We need God to forgive each one of us. Forgiveness, uh, Jay Adams said in his book, Forgiveness, his book, From Forgiven to Forgiving, he said, Forgiveness is man's greatest need. Without it, he is doomed to spend eternity in hell suffering for his sins. With it, with forgiveness, he will spend eternity in heaven with God, enjoying the eternal fruits of Christ's righteousness. Now, of course, eternity in the new heavens and new earth, we will spend with him enjoying the eternal fruits of Christ's righteousness. Do you know, it's much celebrated that God is a loving, gracious, compassionate, merciful, long-suffering God, amen and amen, and yet... Exodus 23, verse 7, I will not acquit the guilty. What, I will not acquit. I will not declare innocent. I will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. And you think, well, phew, I'm glad I'm not one of those guilty persons. Nahum 1 and verse 3 says, Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Psalm 7 Beginning at verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow, made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts against the guilty. Guess what? Everybody's guilty. There's no one on earth from Adam to the last person ever born in this world that is innocent, innocent, innocent. No, we are Guilty, guilty, guilty. We are so much susceptible to the condemnation, the guilt, the, the imp not even the imputation, that just by nature we are guilty, unrighteous people. We can have an imputed, an alien righteousness given to us by Christ, but that only comes to those who confess him as Christ, as Lord and Savior. Psalm 32 says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So we need God to forgive us. Why is forgiveness important? Because also we need to forgive one another. We need to forgive one another. The thing about being in this world is that, well, as it said, I think it was John Donne in his poem, 
um, for whom the bell tolls. He talks about the that no man is an island unto himself. No man is an island. Uh, we all have relationships. We all relate to another. We're part of a bigger society, a bigger bigger culture. And you think, well, I'm an individualist. And, well, fine, but you still have to relate to other people. And it's not always going to be hunky-dory, happy, you know, skipping on the roses kind of thing. We have all kind of offenses, all kind of upsets, all kind of issues that we have toward one another. Because we must have relationships, even to fulfill the Lord's commandment, right? This is my commandment that you read my Bible every day and meditate upon it and memorize it. And, you know, this is my commandment that you love one another. Now, he says, this is my commandment that you keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But he says, love one another. This is the proof all men will know that you're my disciples, John 13. 34 and 35, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so we need to have relationships, but there's just so much issues. Somebody said it this way, the more, and this is humanly speaking, by the way, supernaturally we can get along just fine, but humanly speaking, the more we get to know each other, the less we tend to like each other. You think, amen? Okay, the more you get to know me, I get to know you. I wish I didn't know that about you, or you didn't know that about me. Not that we're trying to hide things, but, oh, really? Uh, That's a bummer. But in Christ, in Christ, we can relate to one another in grace and kindness and so forth. We sin. We're sinned against. Surprise, surprise. We live in a fallen world. We live with fallen people, and yet God is at work. He is saving. He's sanctifying. Quoting Jay Adams again, he says, Forgiveness is the oil that keeps the machinery of the Christian home and church running smoothly. In a world where even those who have been declared perfect in Christ sin, there is much to forgive. Christians who must work together closely find themselves denting each other's fenders, now and then taking out a taillight or two, at times even having head-on collisions. Under such conditions, forgiveness is what keeps things from breaking down completely. Well, what is this forgiveness we are talking about? How could we define it? One definition, and it brings in a lot of different aspects of what forgiveness is, is this uh, brief statement from MacArthur's book, uh, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is a voluntary, rational decision to set the offense aside and desire only the best for the offender. It is a voluntary. It's something that comes from me. It's not forced, right? Remember what Paul said to Philemon, I could command you, but I'm going rather to plead with you. I am not going to do it so that you would respond by compulsion, but voluntarily or willingly from yourself. It is a voluntary, it's a rational decision. It's something we decide, we settle on in our hearts. We make that resolve, a resolution that we are going to do something. It is not so much informed by emotions. We'll see one excuse or one reason why we've, we think we have right to, to not forgive other people is because we just don't feel like it. We just don't feel like it. Well, this is a rational decision. This is something we declare in our souls that we're going to change the way that we relate to the other person. By doing what? We're setting the offense aside and desiring only the best for the offender. We want them to to, uh, succeed. We want them to prosper in life. We want them to be happy. We want them to be fulfilled. We want them to walk in the path that Christ has for us. They've been straying. Read Psalm 32, Psalm 51, David's confession. He says, you know, I was straying this way. And actually it's in Psalm 119 also that that this idea of turning aside to the right or to the left and not walking down that straight and narrow path of the Lord. We have a concern for the offender that we are seeking the best for that person. That's really love. I mean, one definition of love is seeking that which is good in the best interest of the other person. And what is what is love? Well, love is certainly certainly not anything less than forgiving the offenses of the other person. 
what does forgiveness do? There are a few aspects of, of the effect of forgiveness. When we declare, having rationally decided we are going to forgive somebody, we are promising, we're resolving to remove the offender's guilt. We are removing the offender's guilt. Forgiveness does not excuse the guilt. It does not ignore it. Kind of like that concealing transgression. That, that's, that's something different. We're talking about, we know that this was a sin. We know that it caused a rift in the relationship. What are we going to do about it? We're not making excuses. Well, I was just having a bad day or all those kind of things. Or, or ignoring it. I'm not going to focus on that. No, we deal with it. Honestly, we know this is a problem for this person. We, need, we know that this, you know, left unchecked, left unconfronted, it's going to lead them into further entrapment, further snares and, and despair and destruction for themselves and those near to the person. And so we want to deal with it. Forgiveness does not ignore guilt. It removes it. It removes guilt. It is setting aside the offense. It is something that takes away. So many, so many times in Scripture, we see uh, taking away a reproach, forgiving iniquity, uh, taking away or bearing the the sins. Um, Matthew 18, uh, we looked at that last week, I think. Uh, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you, the master who forgave the, the big old uh, million-dollar debt of, of uh, the one slave? We see that even the word graciously forgive, not just forgive, but graciously, just over, you know, uh, super abundant kind of a forgiving that uh, Jesus speaks about. Uh, there's another parable, Luke 7, verse 42, um, earlier in that, and he introduces the parable, but he says that a master was, uh, slaves were unable to pay. So when they were both unable to pay, he, the master, graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Which of those two slaves who owed the master money gave him both? The Pharisee Jesus was with, Simon, answered and said, I suppose the one who, whom he forgave more will love him more. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. The idea of graciously forgiving, laying aside these things, taking away or pardoning the reproach, uh, even in the in the context of a whole different situation, Rachel, wife of Jacob, had a son. This is Genesis thirty and verse twenty three. Rachel conceived and bore a son, was Joseph, and she said, "God has taken away my reproach." It's also the same kind of thing that we see in Luke one, when Elizabeth is in her in her old age is granted a child, taking away removing her reproach. Why is that so important? Pardoning it. Uh, she wasn't guilty, right? Luke 1 says that she was a righteous, God-fearing woman along with her husband, and, and God was very pleased with them. And yet she was without child. That was a reproach in that day and age. It's not so much a reproach now. We have all kind of people that celebrate all kind of wickedness. And yet God is pardoning iniquity. Uh, Exodus 34, verse 9, when God is revealing himself to Moses in that context. He's talking about pardoning iniquity, taking away these things, canceling a debt. We've looked at that kind of idea before. We saw it in Colossians 2 also. There was a certificate of debt, a written saying, you owe this, you're, you're bankrupt, you're a lousy, no good, uh, whatever. But Christ took that thing nailed it to his cross and died. He paid that pe penalty for us. Uh, Colossians 2 and verse 14 says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees which was hostile to us, he also has taken out of the way having nailed it to the cross. And so we see a remission, a canceling of our debt. Christ, when he talked about forgiving in the Sermon, or in the sermon on the Mount, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors or those who are indebted to us. And so debt is a, is a key aspect of this. Um, 
another aspect of removing the offender's guilt relates to the idea, well, I just can't ever forget the, what that offender did to me. I, you know, forgive and forget. Wait a minute. Where does the Bible say that you forgive and forget? Now, thankfully, God says, I will not remember these things against you. I will not bring them up. Forgetting is a rather passive thing. How do you forget something when you continually focus on it? When you constantly rehearse this thing, I was offended, I was wounded, I was victimized by this person. This, you know, the, when we celebrate the anniversaries of, of our, our victimhood and so forth, we should move beyond that. If we continue to focus on the things that are, are wicked, that, that's a snare. That is a poison, that is a prison in our own minds. But in here, when it says, uh, God says, I will not remember their sins against them. I will not bring them to mind or to bring them up uh, against them in in order to curse them there there's this is a big idea and i'll try to summarize it briefly there is a this idea of remembering is not just a mental thing it's something oh, i remember that like recall when you recall a name or something but remembering in a in a more of a formal uh, remembering either for the benefit of or for the cursing or the detriment of somebody we see this a lot in Nehemiah. We think, boy, Nehemiah, what's, what's your deal? Nehemiah 5 and 19, verse 19 says, Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all I've done for this people. Remember all of my good things and you know, put it to my account because of all these, these things. Uh, Nehemiah 13, 14 also says a very similar thing. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I perform for the house of my God and its services. Also in verse 22. It's mentioned. Psalm 132 and verse 1 says, Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all his affliction, how he was so concerned about the temple, and the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and he had great labors to, to try to get these things together. Remember him, O Lord, and all of the affliction he did for your sake. Even in the New Testament, we see this idea. Acts 10 and verse 31, the angel said to Cornelius, the centurion in, in Caesarea, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. God remembered them. We see that also in Exodus 2, I think, when God heard the, the cries of his people and remembered his covenant and all that. I think there are four different verbs there in Exodus 2 that describe God's attention that he gave to them. There is a contrary thing. Remembering to bless is one thing, but then remembering to accuse. Did you know Deuteronomy 29 and verse 20 says, the Lord shall never be willing to forgive the one who walks in the stubbornness of his heart, parenthesis, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. God shall never be willing to forgive those who walk in the stubbornness of their heart. Nehemiah, and as much as he was concerned that God would remember good things for him, said, remember, Nehemiah 6, verse 14, remember, O oh my God, Hovia and Sanballat, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to all these, the works of theirs, and also Nadia, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. It's an interesting context in Nehemiah 6 about what's going on there. But Nehemiah says, remember against them. And even Nehemiah 13 and verse 29, remember them, these were unfaithful priests, oh my God, because they defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Other examples we could look at about the remembering to curse and, and so forth. But there's a, the thing that we're looking for is not remembering to accuse. God promises that he will not remember to accuse us before the judgment seat, before certainly the great white throne, but even the, the bema, the, the, uh, the judgment seat for Christians. God will not remember to accuse our sins or bring them up against us. Uh, he, you know, it, have, we will be 
rewarded or not rewarded based on our performance in this life, but what Christ has done is what frees us from the penalty, the guilt of our sin. And so we, we realize that uh, he does not remember like Psalm 79 verse 79 verse 8 Psalm 79 verse 8 do not remember our former iniquities against us let your compassion quickly approach us for we are brought very low Isaiah 43 and verse 25 a similar idea I God speaking I even I am the I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins other examples we can see also in this regard, that we have redemption, Colossians 1 verse 14, the forgiveness of our sins. We see that Christ was, God was in Christ reconciling the word himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, That's 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19. What does forgiveness do? It removes the offender's guilt. What does it lead to? Reconciliation. I mentioned this before. It would be one thing for God to forgive us, forgive our sins, remove the guilt of our sins, but then just let us wander in this world alone, not bringing us close to himself, not adopting us into his family. Just, just I forgive you, but get out of my life. I don't, I don't need you, don't want you. I forgive you, but that's it. No, that's not what forgiveness means. That's not how God has forgiven us. He brings us right close to himself, the enemy, the persecutor of God. Saul of Tarsus persecuted the church, destroyed the brethren, the one who gave hardly approval to Stephen, the first Christian martyr's death. Forgiveness leads to reconciliation. Paul, you come right on near to me. Others who uh, afflicted God's people. Think of Nebuchadnezzar, who brought judgment on Judah, Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, all these things. This is the one in Daniel 4 and elsewhere that, that gives testimony to God. God, I know there's only one God. And he's, it's not me. It's, it's different than me. So there is a reconciliation that is a product, a fruit, an effect of forgiveness, where we desire all parties to, to get along to um, have a relationship going forward. It's not like, oh, you're saying it kind of sounds so easy to do that. Just forgive and, and move on and, and bring that guy right back in, you know, hugs all, all around. Proverbs eighteen nineteen realizes, underscores the difficulty that we face in our lives dealing with one another's offenses. Uh, Proverbs eighteen nineteen says, A brother offended is harder to win over than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. So a brother is offended, is harder to win over than a strong city. It's easier to go defeat a city you know, with the walled defenses and even the bars of a citadel. Those are the things that, that keep the gates shut, that you try to open the, open the gates and you can't do it. That's what disagreements, and it, so it's not like it's an easy thing, which is why being permeated with grace and mercy and compassion, realizing that we have received it from God, therefore we can show that same mercy to other people. It leads to reconciliation, as I read in that Second Corinthians 5 passage, that larger passage, beginning at verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. All these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. How do we do it? That Christ was, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation the gospel message we preach to other people because that is what this reconciliation uh, provides or what this forgiveness provides, that reconciliation. Peter was restored, reconciled with God, with Jesus, of course, in John 21. Peter having denied Christ, not just once, twice, or three, three times. I don't even know the man. What? And Jesus said, do you love me? 
Three times Jesus asked that question and reinstated Peter. And, of course, Jesus said, Peter, uh, follow me. And turning, don't you love that about Peter? Jesus said, follow me. And turning, Peter said, what about him? Talking about John. And you can read that in John 21, how Jesus answers that question. But there is that measure of reconciliation, bringing back into harmony the peace, the peacemaking after a conflict, after having dealt with it. You know, confronted the sin and, and which led toward repentance and confession and so forth. Forgiveness leads to reconciliation. I could look at some other uh, texts, texts here. Oh, there's another one. Psalm 120, verse 7. I am for peace, but when I speak, they're for war. No matter what I do, no matter what I say, they are against me, they're against me. And not just in a victimization kind of a method, but... but I can't do anything to please them. I, there's nothing I can do, humanly speaking, to please them. God, please help. I'm for peace, but when I speak there for war, we see that there are other effects of, of uh, forgiveness. That is to say, uh, promoting inner peace. Instead of dwelling on that incident, dwelling on that, that uh, um, the bitterness, the, 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 uh, the offense, the anger that just boils up in us, no, we release the anger. We, we, we are trying to help that offender overcome sin, sinful tendencies, sinful patterns of life that they have, we're leaving judgment to God. You know, God is going to have to figure this out. I can't figure it out. I'm going to leave judgment to God at the end of Romans 12. It talks about that. Overcome evil with good, leave room for the wrath of God and so forth. We can recover joy. You know, what saps joy in some respects is focusing on hurts, bitterness. I was just offended. I just was mistreated. Yes, you were. But can you move on? Can you be thankful for what God is doing in your life, even the life of that offender? Maybe there's a life change that that person is going through as well. And you may not have any more contact with that person. Maybe the person's dead, but you don't know what, what might have been the last, you know, the dying cry of that person or, or how their lives may have changed in the course of the, the offense that they committed against you. And now 20, 30 years later, you hear that they just passed away and, and what? Oh, that brings back to the memories. But then you think, boy, I hope they, I hope they trusted Christ before they died. I hope they confessed their sin. I never heard anymore from them. Why should your joy be tied to somebody else's sin? They're, they're clinging to sin. You release it to God. You, you cultivate hope that God is good, that he is so kind and ready to forgive. You find peace with him. You deal with the hurts. You commit them to the Lord. You act in God's strength. You see that he is faithful. He is doing works in my life. You know, not everything that you experience in life is going to be happy and, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's going to test us. It's going to develop our, our, our trust muscles, our reliance muscles on God, saying, we don't understand this, but we know you do. We know that you're not, your hand is not too short to, to save us or deliver us. We know that your ear is right down in our prayers. And so we're, we're going through this trial fully cognizant that God is cognizant that God is faithful. A few other things. I'm sorry for this, for the time. But another thing that forgiveness does is it allows for consequences. And you think, well, wait a minute, I, I thought you forgave me, and, and you're going you're gonna to make me pay that debt? Isn't that what Paul said to Philemon regarding Onesimus? If he has done you wrong or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I will repay it. And of course, he says not to mention you owing me your own life, but he says there are consequences, there are penalties that can be applied even in the context of forgiveness, of reconciliation. You know, restitution is a very big idea in the... In the Old Testament, you realize in Exodus, and I'm just Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, right? And there's some commandments about slaves and so forth. But the next major chapter division, Exodus 21, 
talks about restitution. Also in Exodus 22, talks about restitution in personal injuries and theft, these kinds of things, what should be done. And ultimately, it's, it's you pay back, uh, usually 20%. You pay back the original amount plus 20%. Or if you, you take, if you uh, steal one, Ox, I think, well, no, ox are different. Lamb, if you'd steal a lamb, then you used to pay fourfold, four times the amount of lamb that you stole. Restitution is a big idea. I mentioned it, 2 Samuel chapter 12, after David's sin with Bathsheba. You remember how Nathan the prophet and came and told him that story about the two guys, and one was very rich and didn't have any, or had a lamb and so forth, but then the other guy, the poor guy, had a lamb and tenderly cared for it and so forth. But the rich man took the poor guy's lamb. David's response was, as Yahweh lives, surely the man who's done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution fourfold for that lamb, because he did this thing and had no compassion. It wasn't about the man with the sheep. It was about David stealing your stealing Uriah's wife Bathsheba and doing this thing. He had no compassion. Wickedly, he deserved to die. Was there punishment? Were there, were there consequences, penalties for David? Yeah. The child born to Bathsheba died. Absol- uh, excuse me, David's son, uh, Abnon died. David's son Absalom died. There was a coup in his house. The sword never left the, the family of David until his death. All these things because of David's sin, because of David's uh, wickedness before the Lord. There are penalties. There are, uh, there's restitution to be made. Zacchaeus, by the way, Zacchaeus in Luke 19, when the gospel came into his house, he said, half my possessions I'll give to the poor, and if I've extorted anything, if anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. He, I mean, 20% was the, the restitution that Leviticus and other places called for. He gave 400% back. And Jesus said, surely salvation has come to this house because he also uh, follows after my commandment. There are penalties that can happen. There are penalties even uh, humanly or just materially speaking. If you sowed to the flesh in your youth or whatever kind of situation, there are some ongoing physical, you know, health-related calamities, consequences of your ungodly lifestyle back in the day. You can be forgiven of the sin, but there are some lingering effects. It can be in terms of relationships. You know, I wronged this person. I've tried to make things right, but it just hasn't, hasn't worked out. There can be death that, that follows after a, uh, a sin, uh, a penalty that might be, might be given. Why must you forgive? Well, God has forgiven you. If you're in Christ, if you called upon him, then you must forgive other people. You know that you sin. Why must you forgive? Because you need forgiveness. You know that you need to ask other people to forgive. Why should we forgive? Well, there's this. God commands us to. What? Wait a minute. Where's that in the Bible? Luke 17, 3. Matthew 18, 35. Other texts that say, forgive, forgive, forgive. Ephesians 4, 32. Colossians 3.13 speak about this command to forgive. And we go, ah, but I don't feel like it. Don't, don't you know what the other person has done? No. James 2 and verse 13 says, Judgment will be merciless to the, to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You forgive because God commands you to forgive. We forgive other people because we desire to honor God. We want to show honor by recognizing God is is uh, he's in the he, he concern he is concerned about these matters. First John two and verse twelve says, "I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake." Forgiveness is something that testifies to God's glory, God's uh, in interest in our lives. We want to imitate God. 
He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, bounding in love and kindness. He is forgiving. He does not always deal with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. We imitate God. We desire to show love to the offender. We're concerned. If I don't deal with this thing, then this is going to go on. This is a problem. It's causing a rift between them and me. And now I see it going over in this relationship. And, and I just see the, the tendency, the... the, the um, path of their conduct is, is not good. I, I need to show love by exercising forgiveness, exercising even the confrontation. We entrust judgment to God. I'm going to let God sort this out. I don't know. I don't know how this all works together. As for me, I'm going to live at peace. I'm going to pursue what is good, beneficial for the other person. I'm going to entrust myself to God who does rightly. First uh, Peter Two, verse 23 says, God, Jesus rather, kept entrusting himself to him, God the Father, who judges righteously. God will do that. There are some arguments against forgiveness. I'm trying to wrap this up for us. Sometimes we don't feel like forgiving. Read Luke 17, 7 through 10. I don't feel like forgiving. You're not run by feelings, not run by emotion. You are run by a rational, voluntary decision to declare the other person innocent, not holding that guilt against them. I cannot forgive. Well, that's a willful thing. You, you cannot is I will not. I choose not to, to do it. It's a matter of obedience, not your capacity. And you know, you've heard this perhaps before. The thing which God commands of us, he also empowers us to do. When Paul said to Philemon, refresh my heart in Christ, give me some benefit in the Lord. He's saying, I know Philemon, in your own strength, you can do it. But in the Lord, in the power of Christ, you are able to refresh me and do me some benefit. To say I cannot forgive or to say, you know, I, that is just beyond forgiveness. I can never forgive that, that person. Or, you know, we've kept track of these things, and Jesus said up to seven, seven time, you know, 70 times seven, well, this is the 491st time he's done it, so I don't have to forgive anymore. Wait a minute, what are you doing keeping record of wrong suffered? If you forgave them those other times, what are you, it's, it's like it's not even recorded. What are you doing? I cannot forgive. It's a matter of obedience. I will not forgive. We've looked at that as a choice. It's a matter, matter of, of obedience before the Lord. And this idea, I cannot forget this. Well, forgetting, as I mentioned, is a passive activity. Not remembering against somebody, that's an active, you work at it. I'm not bringing this up against them. You might never forget the offense. But when you forgive the offender, you must promise not to bring up the offense against them any longer. God doesn't do it. He doesn't throw our sin back in our face. He doesn't say, well, you remember when you did that or this and the other thing? No, he doesn't bring that issue up against love. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, love keeps no record of wrongs suffered. Doesn't mean there's an instant fix. Doesn't mean this is an easy fix that we'll forget these things. No. Lou Priol in his, in his book, The Complete Husband, says forgetting is not the same thing as not remembering. When you forgive, you'll not remember your offender's sin against him, just like God does not remember your sins against you as a forgiven sinner. Does God have amnesia? No, God is omniscient and therefore knew about your sins even before you were born. When the Bible speaks of God forgetting our sins, it does not mean that he ceases to be omniscient. God's forgetting amounts to his not reviewing our sins in his mind and not holding our sins against us. God remembers the righteousness of his Son and imputes that righteousness to our account when we place our trust in the merit and mediation of Christ. Similarly, you are required to impute your forgiveness to those who ask you to forgive them. Forgiveness is not an act of the will, not an act of the emotions. Forgetting is not the means of forgiving, but the result of forgiving. It is the last step, not the first. End quote from Lou Priola, the complete husband. God help us to forgive one another as we have been forgiven by Christ. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy toward us, the grace that you have lavished upon us through Christ. Please help us to show that same grace and mercy toward others. Please help us to be ready to forgive as you are ready to forgive, but also to leave the results to you, not knowing we can't change people's hearts, bring them to conviction or repentance. We can show them their fault, but it's up to you to change hearts. Please change our hearts. Please help us to be more like you as a result of our day-to-day conversation with you, studying your word and living it out among your people and amongst those who don't name the name of Christ as well. Please help us to grow. Be more like Jesus. Amen.